Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Hey listeners. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We're glad you're joining us today because we get to celebrate Canada Day. Yes, Canada Day is in just a few days. And so we're excited to celebrate. Buried Motive style, of course. Definitely Buried Motive style. Because Christy's got a wicked case for us. I do. Because we are a Canadian-based podcast, I decided that I would bring you all one of Canada's grossest dirtbags in our episode preceding Canada Day. Not the way to celebrate a country per se, but like Melissa said, it is how we roll here at Buried Motives. This case was a listener request. I was surprised I didn't know about it, but once I started researching, I knew it would be our Canada Day case. It is a doozy of a case. I had actually had a file open on this one, so I know a little bit, but I haven't dug too deep into it. The listener who requested that we cover this dirtbag was Trish. So thank you, Trish, for this recommendation. Listeners, keep the requests coming. Like we have said before, we may not be able to cover each of the requests that we get, but each one is appreciated. We love hearing from you, and we love reading your reviews. So thank you so much to everyone who has rated us and posted a positive review. And if you haven't, head over to wherever you listen to our podcast and give us a review. We would love that. It actually means a lot to both of us. We read every one of them. But on to today's case. Yes. Our dirtbag of the week is Luca Rocco Magnata. However, he was not born with this name. What? Are you kidding me? (laughs) It's such an awesome name. (laughs) He was born on July 24th, 1982, and was given the name Eric Clinton Kirk Newman. He would legally change his name later in life, which we will talk about, but to make things less confusing, I'll just call him Luca right from the start. Luca was born in Scarborough, Ontario. And I was thinking to myself, why do so many of the Canadians we cover come from there? There's a lot of people in Ontario. It's population density. There's nothing wrong with Ontario. Well, Scarborough in particular, it seems. So our fellow Canadians in Ontario, are you guys okay? (laughs) (laughs) We are sending anti-dirtbag vibes to you all. I think I just seem to cover a lot from that specific area. This is probably like my fifth case from Scarborough. Oh, really? Yeah. That's crazy. Luca was the firstborn of three children to Anna Yurkin and Donald Newman. He has a younger brother named Conrad and a younger sister named Melissa. But I'm not sure the order they were born, just that Luca was the oldest. The information we have about Luca's parents is mostly from him. I'm not saying it isn't true, but just know that a lot of it comes from his account. And I honestly do think most of it is true. The siblings were able to confirm certain aspects of it. And he's kind of a tell-all kind of person. Oh, he really is. Yep. One thing we know for sure is that Anna and Donald were teenagers when Luca was born. As any teenage parent can attest, this was not an easy thing for them to become parents at such young ages. And they did struggle. They were struggling even before their son was born. For whatever reason, Luca was not sent to school until grade six. They homeschooled? Well... His mom did teach him some type of school at home, but I'm unsure if it was an official homeschool program. He was around the age of 12 when he first went into school, and he said he was told that public school was a dirty and dangerous place. Oh. 
It's an interesting take. Mm-hmm. And maybe it'll be explained by this. Anna was described by her son as being obsessed with cleanliness. So she might have actually meant literal dirt. She would wear a surgical mask and rubber gloves to aggressively wash her children's hands. One account said that she would wash their hands so often that their skin would become raw. And I just had to put this in here. This little quick side note has nothing to do with the case. But speaking of cleaning skin, I just watched a TikTok about face mites. And I have to intentionally try and ignore the horror of reality with this one. But it's just reality. They're supposed to be there. I know. But I Googled it and went down this little rabbit hole. There's some things we don't need to know, Christy. I know, but I'm going to tell you anyways, because it's bothering me. It has to bother you. (laughs) They're called Demodex mites, and they do live on your skin in oily areas. They have these ugly, semi-transparent bodies with eight legs and can only be seen under a microscope. They help by eating dead skin, but if you get too many, they can cause irritation. 23 to 100% of adults have them, and you can't wash them off. Yes, because they're there for a reason. No, I don't like this. (laughs) Each mite lives about two weeks, but lays eggs in your hair follicles and oil glands, so they are constantly replenishing themselves. So again, like I said, sorry guys, but if I have to know, so do you. (laughs) That's where you get your youthful glow from. Ooh, Does that mean I have lots of these little mites (laughs) on my face? (laughs) Do they eat away my wrinkles, maybe? There are so many bugs that live on our body that you would not want to look for. Oh, yeah, it really grossed me out. I'm not going to look about any other ones. But it just made me think of that because Anna was so obsessed with cleanliness to the point of rubbing the skin off of her children. Which is pretty severe. It is. Did she ever get any help for it? Not that I'm aware of. Okay. So back to Anna. She would sometimes lock the kids out of the house, and I thought maybe this was to keep the house clean. Luca said she also put their pet rabbits outside in the winter, and they froze to death. Again, maybe this was because of the mess they were making. Probably. Rabbits are pretty messy. Yeah. I know we babysat rabbits for you at Christmas time one time before you gave them to your kids as presents. Shh. Don't tell them, Christy. It's from Santa. Oh, oops. Santa had us babysit them before he could deliver them to your house. And there's a few little chocolate droppings that I found later on. Just secret presents for you left yep. behind. It's like, thanks, Melissa. <laughs> oh, well, worth it for your kids. But I'm surprised that she would even allow animals in the house. Yeah, and I'm not sure how they got there in the first place. And maybe she thought, oh, no, it'll be fine. And then realized, no, I'm not okay with this. But putting them outside to freeze to death. That's what? pretty cruel. That was pretty cruel. This seems to me as extreme behavior, and I wonder if she had some type of OCD or mental illness. It does seem that way. Donald, Luca's dad, did have a diagnosed mental illness. It was known that he was diagnosed with schizophrenia in 1994, when Luca would have been around 12 years old and starting school. So I wonder if there was some intervention in the family that happened around that time, and that's why he started attending school at that time. Could have been. That's a good point. Donald was described as an alcoholic and not necessarily a nice one. Soon after being diagnosed with schizophrenia, Donald and Anna divorced. With his dad gone, three kids were too much for Anna to handle, so Luca moved in with his grandmother. At some point, his grandparents had also divorced. I'm unsure if it was before or after Luca moved in. What we do know by Luca's account is that it was his grandmother Phyllis who mainly raised him. Grandpa, I think, had already been moved out by this time. 
So I assume by his statement that grandma was involved in Luca's life a great deal, even prior to him even moving in with her. Hmm. So maybe that's who made him go to school. Could have been too. Another good point. Phyllis would sometimes put Luca in her clothes and would sleep in the same bed as him when he was younger. This is weird, but nothing sexual was happening. However, sadly, Luca would not escape sexual abuse. As an adult, Luca told psychiatrist Joel Paris that he had been sexually assaulted by a male cousin when he was 14. Oh. I would think that this happened at his grandmother's house while the extended family visited, but I have no further details about this. He also told this doctor that he had fears of abandonment, being cheated on, and had chronic feelings of emptiness. Looking at his childhood, it is easy to see how he would feel this way. Mm-hmm. As a kid, Luca liked to play with Barbies and said he was confused about his gender. He grew up in the 80s and 90s when feelings like this were not widely considered acceptable. Just because you play with Barbies, though, doesn't mean that you have gender dysmorphia. Oh, absolutely. It does not. <laughs> no. But in the 80s, if a boy was playing with Barbies, people would look at it that way. Okay. In fact, one time, his grandmother said that he held a glass like a gay slur that starts with the letter F. I'm not going to say the actual word. Apparently, his younger brother would also often call him this name. And that is just so mean. That is mean. Can you imagine your grandma calling you that? No, I can't. No. (laughs) As an adult, Luca would comfortably state that he was definitely bisexual and enjoyed the sexual company of both men and women. When Luca got into grade nine, he attended high school at I.E. Weldon Secondary School in Lindsay, Ontario. Understandably, Luca was shy and withdrawn. It didn't sound like he had a lot of friends. However, he was described by teachers and classmates as being very into his own looks. He liked to dress as trendy as possible and was always changing his hair color. The pics of him look really preppy. The one I saw was, I don't know if you remember that hairstyle where it's long on top and slicked back while the sides of the head is shaved. Yeah. Luca would later admit that his looks were everything to him. The thing he cared about the absolute most in life. During school, he wrote a report on Ava Gardner and Sharon Stone. He was also said to be obsessed with Marilyn Monroe. All these women were extremely beautiful and had obvious sex appeal. This is interesting because of what we are still to discuss about Luca's continued obsession with his looks. Didn't all of them rise up from humble beginnings too? Like they all rose up to be sought after by other people. To be admired. Yeah. Look at you just connecting all the dots with this case. I love it. Around the age of 17, Luca started to hear voices. He also started to often feel afraid and spoke louder than usual. His grandmother was concerned about him and took him to see a psychiatrist in 1999. He was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, just like his father had been. Luca's mental illnesses and state gets widely debated during his trial, which we'll talk a little bit more about when we get there. By the age of 18, Luca had dropped out of school, went on disability, and was admitted to a psychiatric group home for a time. At this group home, he sometimes believed that the government was following him and had bugged his phone. That's a common thought process for paranoid schizophrenics. That's what I thought too. Mm -hmm. Luca's condition didn't get much better as he entered his 20s. He was admitted into hospitals in Scarborough, Lindsay, and Toronto to be treated for schizophrenia. Doctors from these hospitals prescribed him antipsychotic medications to treat his condition. The medications seemed to help, but he didn't always take them consistently. Which is, again, another thing that goes along with schizophrenia. 
And we've talked about that vicious cycle that can happen sometimes mm-hmm. of feeling good, not taking your meds. In 2002, at age 20, Luca started stripping at a nightclub named Remington's in Toronto. And of course, I looked up the club. I found one called Remington's Men of Steel, located on Young Street in Toronto, but it appears that it has been permanently shut down. Dang. <laughs> Dang nabbit. Sorry, <laughs> listeners, you can't go. I went and looked at reviews from years ago, and they were definitely mixed. Some people seem to absolutely love it, but a lot expressed being charged more than they had agreed to for private dances, and one review stated that the place smelled like diarrhea. Oh, gross. Yeah, that painted quite the picture. (laughs) Why? Why did it smell like diarrhea? (laughs) That's not the kind of lap dance you want. (laughs) No. no. (laughs) The following couple of years after he started stripping... Luca began appearing in pornographic movies. His first two movies, he played a straight man who turned gay. In one of the other films, he played a character named Jimmy. He must have liked this role because he would go on to use this name of Jimmy when he progressed from stripping and making pornographic films to working as an escort. And so you can see here how he is slowly progressing through these lines of work. Because in his type of escort work, it was all benefits included. Oh, okay. Mm Mm-hmm. There was definitely sex work taking place during that. And I did want to note that he used many other aliases, including one being Vladimir Romanov. Unfortunately, selling his body was not the only way Luca sought to earn money. In 2004, he was charged for fraud for an absolutely dirtbag move. This little worm pretended to befriend a 21-year-old woman who was only functioning at the mental capacity of a 12-year-old. Luca had this woman apply for different credit cards and maxed them out, totaling $10,000. Oh. Yeah, which is closer to about $15,000 Canadian today. And I believe the cards were from Sears Canada, The Brick, in 2001 audio video. And he did this purposely. Purposefully. Luca also sexually assaulted this woman and videotaped it. He wasn't getting enough sex at work? I guess not. This was probably more about the control taking advantage. Right. I think he felt like he probably had total control over her. He had her applying for these credit cards, maxing them out, could have sex with her when he wanted. And for some unbelievable reason, the Crown dropped the sexual assault charge before he went to trial for the fraud. Why? I was so angry when I heard that. His lawyer, Peter Scully, would later basically say that the decision to drop the sexual assault charges was a mistake. He said it changed the direction of Luca's life, quote, immeasurably, with huge ramifications to our society eventually. Yeah, no kidding. And I thought, why on earth is a fraud charge looked at more seriously than a man taking advantage of a woman, especially one that is only functioning at a child's age? This takes a special kind of evil, in my opinion. It is, but I bet you on paper it's easier to prove. He videotaped it. There's your proof right there. That's crazy. It blew my mind. It should have went the other way around drop the fraud charges and charge him for the sexual assault. Which one had the longer sentence? Well, he hardly gets a sentence. Oh, so another dirtbag gets off and will lead to murder because they didn't prosecute them hard enough. Exactly. This is definitely one of those cases where right here in this moment, things could have gone so differently. And maybe we wouldn't have even had a murder charge. Luca pled guilty to four fraud charges in 2005. His lawyer argued that Luca had, quote, significant psychiatric issues. The judge, Madame Justice Lauren Marshall, took his mental health into consideration when she said to Luca, quote, 
You have a medical problem and you need to always take medication. If you do not, your life is going to get messed up. And I say this was a gross understatement. And what about his victims' lives? Did he not mess up that woman's life? Yeah, really, hey? As I alluded, Luca was given a light slap on the wrist with a sentence of nine months community service and one year of probation. And so this judge recognizes that he needs to be on medication permanently, and yet there's probably no follow-up to make sure he does those things. While the court did order him to comply with a treatment program and or counseling for medical health issues and life skills as directed and take all prescribed medication, but I am unsure if any follow-up to this order took place. I highly doubt it. It's like the parents that say, well, this is what should be done, and that don't follow through. Right. And we can all be those kind of parents sometimes. <laughs> it's true. Ontario's Ministry of Community and Social Service was not able to speak on this due to privacy protection laws. The only time Luca spent in jail was 16 days while he was in pretrial custody. So he served 16 days and did some community service. But he's going to come out with a whole gangster attitude now. Yeah, well, I think it liberates these dirtbags when they feel like, oh, I can do anything. While enjoying his virtually zero consequence, Luca continued to appear in pornographic films. He also landed some modeling work. One of his modeling jobs was appearing in a bi-weekly gay magazine called Fab that was distributed in Toronto. He was featured on the Fab Boy page as Jimmy and described himself as a 22-year-old soccer fan who was born in Russia, I think is where he gets that other alias from. He said he lived in Toronto and had dreams of becoming a vice or homicide police officer. I am not sure if he was a soccer fan, but he wasn't born in Russia. And learning that he had dreams of becoming a police officer didn't actually surprise me, since it is quite common for murderers to have a fascination with authoritative positions, like working for the police force. Yeah, it's all about the control. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of 2006, Luca started a relationship with a transgendered woman named Barbie. Barbie would later tell the Fifth Estate that Luca really wanted to be famous one day. She said he had what looked like a shrine to himself inside his apartment and was always asking her to take pictures of him. Their relationship only lasted around seven months, but it was clear that Luca was extremely obsessed with himself and his appearance. Can you imagine having a shrine to yourself? <laughs> no, I'm just trying to figure out why that would be. Like, what was he missing early in childhood? that he has to build himself up so much. I think it goes back to those abandonment issues. And that if he has a fan base, then he would never be abandoned? Yeah, he probably didn't feel loved as a child, and so just wanted to feel loved all of the time. Okay. Loved and admired. I could see that. Yeah. But can you imagine, like, walking into somebody's house and they have, like, a shrine of themselves, all these pictures, and he's getting into modeling now, so he'd have all these photos. No, I would probably walk out. Yeah. <laughs> You're too much work. <laughs> One photo, maybe, but, or if at least be in the picture with other people. But yeah. these were like, I think, like glamour shots that he had all over the place. But is it really any different than you walking into like an actress's home and they have all like their Emmys and their Grammys and their. Those are achievements. <laughs> I think that's a little different. And one or two, fine. Or maybe if that was like a movie poster or something. But it sounds like this was excessive. It does sound excessive, but I'm wondering if he was viewing it as his achievements. Like, look, I'm in this magazine. I put it up there. Or look at this headshot that I took. It's an achievement. He's not really achieving much else. Yeah, likely. 
There was a few pictures that I stumbled across that if they were not censored, I would have got a bigger eyeful than I had planned for. Oh, really? <laughs> so I don't know what some of these pictures actually were of. <laughs> it's a different kind of achievement. Yeah. <laughs> Another alleged partner of Luca's named Angel stated that Luca hated his family because they didn't accept him and described Luca as being a liar, having a short fuse, being manipulative, and self-destructive. Just after turning 24 on August 12, 2006, Luca legally changed his name from Eric Clinton Kirk Newman to Luca Rocco Magnata. It was said that at this time, he had a desire to reinvent himself. My guess is he thought this new name was better fit for celebrity status. This new name would become widely known, just not for the reasons he had originally hoped. Be an awesome name for his magazine covers. It is a cool, like, celebrity name. Mm-hmm. In March of 2007, Luca got himself into financial crisis and had to file for bankruptcy over $17,000 worth of debt. Today, this is worth over $25,000. He listed the cause of this filing as, quote, illness, lack of employment, and insufficient income to pay off debts. But it sounds like he has so many jobs. The escort business, the magazine covers, the pornos. He had to have been making some money. I think he was investing a lot of it back into himself, which we'll talk about. Oh, okay. Part of this claim was that he was paying $200 each month for an unspecified medical condition. Was that his medication that he was supposed to be taking? I'm assuming. That's all that it said. Luca was still not the celebrity that he wanted to be, so he decided to audition for a couple of reality TV shows. And I always love a reality TV show, but let me explain to you the ones that he applied for. First, he auditioned for a show called Cover Guy, hosted by OutTV, hoping to land a job as an underwear model. I assume the show title was a play on the popular beauty brand, CoverGirl. In this show, aspiring male models compete for $1,000 cash, a fashion photo shoot, a gym membership, being featured on the front cover of About Magazine, and the honor of being the new underwear model for Montreal's 3G actual wear. During the interview, he told the judges, quote, A lot of people tell me I'm really devastatingly good looking. So full of himself. (laughs) I agree that he is devastating, but not for his looks. He did not get cast on this show. They didn't buy it? (laughs) No, and I'm laughing because I just can't even imagine those words coming out of my mouth. (laughs) It sounds like he had a lot of confidence. Next time I meet somebody, maybe I'll say that. A lot of people tell me I'm really devastatingly good looking. (laughs) Just to see what their reaction. We can tell that to our husbands tonight and see what their reaction is. Okay. So we had to report back to each other. That's right. (laughs) And he was serious, like so dead face serious about it. It's hard to imagine somebody saying that with a serious face. Oh, he was very serious about it. But his face is what he's wanting to make him rich, right? So he's trying to promote himself. Right. And you have to have confidence if you're going to be in that line of work. Oh, yeah. The next year in 2008, Luca tried to get cast on a reality show on the Slice Network called Plastic Makes Perfect. I did watch a 21-minute casting interview with Luca for this show. Honestly, he comes across as a soft-spoken, nice guy. He's not very big and doesn't come across as a threat. It is clear that he is obsessed with his looks and freely admits it during the interview. Luca spoke about how, in his line of work, he feels like he has to be perfect. He talks about how he will look and see who is being successful and analyze his looks and then try to look like that too. For example, he was talking about how, and I think it might have been a popular porn star, had the protruding bone above his eyebrows filed down. Then he started to notice the bumps above his own eyebrows. 
He explained to the producers how he wants to get his file down too, but they can only file down so much before it basically compromises the strength of his skull in that area. He comes across as willing to do anything and undergo any knife for beauty. Had he gotten the opportunity, I think he would have become one of those people who get so much plastic surgery that they start to look plastic. I'm sure you can picture what I'm meaning. Oh, totally. And I feel like this also shows just kind of how lost he was because he was just always looking at the next guy. What does he look like? Why is he popular? What can I do like him? Because even the producer questions him and says, well, most people that I've seen in adult films for the men are not that attractive. And so he names one of the guys in that industry who is very popular and good looking. And he's like, well, no, I want to be the best. So I need to be better. Okay. Mm-hmm. Kind of has uh, Marie Hilly vibes where they just model their life after something that they're seeking after constantly. Right. And never really develop an identity of their own. Yeah, I think he was flailing that way. But I don't think he ever felt like he could kind of be himself. If he wanted to play with Barbies and drink out of a teacup, he was called a gay slur by even his family. Right. And then you add on the mental health issues that already convolute that identity piece, and that would make it even harder. Yeah, I think you're right. Continuing with the interview, Lucas shows the person interviewing him where he has already gotten some hair transplants. His hairline was apparently already receding, and so he had that fixed. And I must say it looked really natural. Plus, he had two transplants at the back of his head. The producer says his hair looks fine, and he says he wants one more transplant in the back because it was thinning. And honestly, at that time, it looked like he had a great head of hair. Oh, wow. And just as a little side note with that, I later did read that Luca had struggled with pulling out his hair. So I'm wondering if he was naturally thinning or if it was a compulsive thing for him. Oh, that is interesting. Mm -hmm. I think he might have been pulling at the back of his hair, and that's why he was so obsessed with getting those transplants back there. But he even says, I've already had these two. This is where I have to get the next one because I'm running out of room on my head to get more transplants. Hmm. But I don't know for sure. Just I thought it was worth mentioning because it speaks to his mental health. During this interview, Luca admitted to also having his teeth worked on and a nose job. He said his next venture was wanting to get muscle implants in his pecs and arms. He stated that he worked out a lot but couldn't get to the size of other models and actors who he noticed were successful. Again, he was turned down for this show. Jumping ahead a little, he also auditioned for a documentary by Toronto producer Suzanne Babin on bisexuality in 2010. He didn't get cast for this one either. So he's facing a lot of rejection. Mm-hmm. Which is going to lead him to seeking out some way that he can control and be in power, right? Yeah, and be recognized. And there could have been other shows that he auditioned for, but these were the ones that I was able to find. I think there's a good likelihood there was more. Okay, so you know the saying, any publicity is good publicity? Uh-huh. Well, it seemed that Luca believed this full-heartedly. We see a pattern emerge where Luca creates online aliases to spread rumors about himself. What? Much like a celebrity anonymously calling the paparazzi to leak their location. Oh, man. He's got all the tips going for him. Yeah, he just wanted his name to be on everyone's lips. Under an alias, Luca spread rumors that he had dated the notorious dirtbag Carla Homolka. No way. Yes way. Listeners, if you haven't heard our case on her and Paul Bernardo, you will need to in order to understand just how vile she is. But she has always been big news in Canada, and he wanted to be big news too. The trans women who Luca dated later said that he viewed Carla and Paul as role models. 
And I feel like that statement alone pretty much tells us all we needed to know about Luca as a person. I probably could have skipped pages of my notes. All I needed to say was, yeah, he idolized Carla and Paul. Yeah, that says a lot. Yep. But looking at it right now, and I understand it's hindsight, but the writing's on the wall. You can tell he's going to escalate. Oh, yeah. When you're idolizing Carla Homoka and Paul Bernardo, that's bad. That's really bad. And idolizing killers is something that other killers do at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And we all know he becomes a killer or we wouldn't be talking about him today. You know this is coming. We should just arrest him now. Yeah, exactly. I wish that's how it works sometimes. On September 14th, 2007, Luca entered the Toronto Sun's newspaper headquarters to clear his name. He said he denied knowing or dating Carla. Joe Warmington from the Toronto Sun interviewed Luca. He told CBC's, as it happens, that Luca was, quote, clearly troubled and borderline delusional, at the same time friendly, somebody you kind of felt sorry for, if you will. During the interview with the Toronto Sun, Luca also spoke about how someone killed his dog and then boasted about how he was in great demand as a male escort. Wait, I am totally confused. What did he have to clear his name from? Dating Carla. But nobody cares after the fact. Well, he didn't want to tarnish his character by being tied to a killer. (laughs) Even though he's the one that spread the rumor in the first place. Right. So he's just creating all this publicity for himself. Yeah. Joe Warrington said, quote, It was one of those situations where you realize somebody is not all there. He also said that Luca had a story to tell, so they just let him tell it. At the time, no one knew that he was the one who started the rumors. He later went on to post on an alias account of YouTube a tribute video to Carla. When later investigating him, police announced that Luca had dated Carla, but quickly retracted their statement. And I can see this happening because of all the false information about himself that he had put out there. It would be hard to weed through all that information. Yeah, because he's doing it all anonymously. He continued to add fuel to this flame. Even three years later, it is believed that he used an alias to comment under a post about Carla and Luca. Quote, Luca is unable to live unless there is chaos in his life. It makes him feel as though he matters. He's just wanting his name to continually be put out there. But it seems like there might be some truth to that statement. I think so. That one I think is pretty telling. He also posted videos of himself as if they got leaked by this mystery person or persons. He was beyond desperate. But this was kind of an ingenious way to get attention because it would pay off twice. Once to spread the rumor and second to deny it. He would say that all the rumors were hoaxes and that people were cyber stalking him. So now he's the victim. Right. So he's just creating this whole fantasy about himself online. Or is he actually crazy and believes all of this stuff? I don't think he believes it. Okay. Police later revealed that Luca had set up a minimum of 70 fake Facebook pages and created 20 websites to carry out his schemes. That's a lot of time to commit to doing that instead of just going and doing the work. I agree. On these media outlets, Luca would praise himself, saying he was a supermodel and popular porn star, or he'd spread scandalous rumors. One of the sites he anonymously referred to himself as, quote, the new James Dean. Ooh, a bad boy. Mm Mm-hmm. And a little side note again, he had also created an official Luca Magnata website to showcase himself. Of course he had. Luca claimed he had haters and stalkers on the internet and wrote, quote, and this is very ironic, 
I have no obsession with the limelight. The reality is, I refuse to give interviews, and I have turned down countless interviewers and media requests to appear. Having appeared in magazines and films years ago does not constitute an unhealthy obsession with the limelight. Most people who spend all their time online belittling others probably have no life, as is evident. That's an interesting statement from Uh him. Exactly. It's like everything you said, the opposite is true. He clearly did have an obsession with being in the limelight. And I doubt he would have turned any interview down. Well, I'm sure it's just another one of his schemes because now he's saying, oh, I don't give interviews. So everybody's going to feel extra special if he does grant them an interview. Right? The truth was he was mediocre at best. It was said that his acting as a porn star was, quote, anything but prolific or high profile. And a staff member of the Internet Adult Film Database said about his work, quote, not even the porn industry was much interested in him. <laughs> Ouch. Such <laughs> says a lot about his talent. Right. Because even like that one girl said, they hire the uglies. Right? <laughs> like, you don't have to be great. They're not hiring the A-listers. <laughs> he performed in less than 12 films over a span of five years. And I did not look up any of the names. <laughs> I didn't want to know. He continued to focus on his online presence throughout 2008. At this time, he had also tried his hardest to get a Wikipedia page made about himself. He was denied each time he tried. What I love about this is that even after making headlines for the murder he later commits, the Wikipedia page about the murder is named after the victim, not him. Oh, that is poetic justice. Yep. Someone was on the ball with that. That's actually the way it should be for every murder. That would be a good way to handle it. Yep. The same year is when he advertised his escort services under the name Jimmy. One of his online reviews from a client described him as cold and remote. I think he was good at turning on the charm when he wanted to, like in his auditions. He probably lacked a lot of depth, though. Mm-hmm. But honestly, when I watched his auditions, like he just seemed like this regular kind of guy. I would have had to really rely on like my spidey senses if I was around him, I think, because mm-hmm. there was no outward thing that would make you second guess him. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. And he had this sad story about growing up and all this kind of stuff. And so you might even feel a little empathetic towards him. But others have said that he's manipulative. So he's definitely using that to his advantage. Oh, for sure. It is his story, but he's using it. He knows how to. In October of 2009, Luca met a 70-year-old man, whose name is protected, at the Pickle Barrel restaurant near the Young and Ellington intersection in Toronto. I assume Luca chose to turn on the charm at this meeting because this man offered Luca to become his traveling companion. They ended up traveling to Russia, Italy, and France together. This man told the Fifth Estate that Luca, quote, walked as if he was on a stage or as if he was on a ramp for modeling clothes. And I can only imagine how much Luca would have lavished in this expensive trip. He would have been in his glory. He would have really felt like he was something traveling the world. Oh, yeah. What we have covered so far regarding Luca hasn't come close to what we're about to talk about from here on out. We don't give our listeners trigger warnings because every episode warrants a trigger warning, but we are going to take a turn into some gruesome acts along with animal cruelty. 2010, things escalate. Luca moved to New York for a time and allegedly stopped all psychiatric care. In the fall of that year, Luca posted a link on his Facebook page to a video that was titled, Three Guys, One Hammer. The link took you to a video of a man being beaten to death with a hammer. Luca had no part in this killing, but I think this speaks to his interaction on the dark web, a place that no one should ever venture. And it's definitely showing how dark his interests are going. 
Yeah, because I'm sure that's not the first video like that that he watched. No, if he's already reposting it, it's a fascination then for him. For sure. And I think that's a quick dark spiral. Next, Luca inconspicuously uploaded video of himself torturing kittens to death on December 21st, 2010. In the video, an unidentified man first plays with the two kittens. He then places the two kittens inside a sealed vacuum bag and sucks all the air out of the bag with a vacuum until they suffocate. He titled the video, One Guy, Two Kittens. The video, once discovered, was quickly removed by YouTube. However, it didn't take long for animal activists to learn about the video, and they were rightfully outraged. As a result, a group of animal activists was created to try and catch this kitten murderer. This part of the case is pretty remarkable. A man named Ryan Boyle, who used to be a soldier for the U.S., created a Facebook group called Find the Vacuum Kitten Killer for Great Justice. Before long, more than 4,000 people joined the cause. Ryan Boyle said that the people in the group, quote, all had the same thing in mind. We wanted to catch this guy. Unsurprisingly, it is believed that Luca joined the group under another alias. <laughs> of course he did. Yep. And when the group would be led astray, they believed it was Luca who posted on a forum hints to keep the focus on himself. For example, posting a photo from the kitten video with his face less blurred. So did they know it was Luca? I assume they were suspecting Luca or just the trail was getting further away from him and he wanted to get it closer to him. Because he wanted the hits on his name. Right. Now is he going to go to the police and clear his name again? No, he doesn't. But that's actually quite surprising that he doesn't. An animal protection group offered a $5,000 reward on December 28th for any information leading to the arrest of the VKK vacuum kitten killer. One of the founders of this group, Joe Pants, told the Fifth Estate about the criminal they were looking for. Quote, once somebody starts to open that door, that's when things start to get really dangerous. And he was so right. Luca started to get a little worried and asked a lawyer the next week if there were any arrest warrants pending on him. And at that point, there wasn't. I think this just shows that he was starting to get a little paranoid. Yeah. But not paranoid enough with what you're going to learn next. At the beginning of 2011, a new online group was started to try and catch the VKK. This group was called the Animal Beta Project. The online alias, John Green, was part of this group. He said, quote, We felt he would continue, that he would harm other animals, and eventually move on to something even more violent, like hurting a person. And they're right. Yep. This group analyzed the video frame by frame and believed that the background furniture, as well as the clothing that the killer was wearing, were the same in some of the videos that Luca had posted of himself on the internet. Oh, they were doing some good sleuthing. They really were. They were sure Luca was the dirtbag whom they had all been looking for. So do they take this to the police? Because it's the police that are actually going to be able to do something about it. Yeah, they totally do. It gets pretty technical, but this group was able to track down Luca to being back in Toronto. They contacted the Ontario Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals and shared what they had discovered. This society then reached out to the Toronto police, who then opened a file on Luca in February of 2011. Oh, so he's even known to the police when he murders? Mm-hmm. Oh. Well, he already had a criminal record, but now they have a file open. This society also alerted the American FBI, the Montreal Police, and the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals in Britain. They did this because Luca was known to travel quite a bit. They were trying to cover all bases, which I thought good for them. 
The animal activists did not take a long time, in my opinion, to track down Luca as the kitten killer. However, it would take police a long time to produce any results. A year after the first kitten video was posted, Luca posted two more in November and December of 2011. The first one was called Python Christmas and showed a man who was wearing a Santa hat feed a live kitten to a python. In the second video, he duct tapes a kitten to the end of a broom handle and drowns it in the bathtub. What a sick dirtbag. That's so disturbing. It is. About these videos, John Green said, quote, He was basically saying, Look, I've done it again. You're not going to catch me. Luca would later say he was coerced in filming these two videos, but I do not believe that at all. I wonder if it happened at a time when his name wasn't getting as many hits. Probably. Things get scarier on December 8, 2011. Luca showed up to the Sun Publishers in London, UK to tell them that he had nothing to do with the story. They ran about the kitten killer. So now he finally is coming in to defend himself. A reporter there, Alex West, said that his behavior was highly suspicious. He said about Luca, quote, I looked into his eyes and did not like what I saw. It wasn't just his appearance that was weird. His behavior was very odd as well. In a strange, high-pitched voice, he spent 20 minutes denying that he was involved in killing the kittens. Behind the denials, it seemed he was getting some sort of bizarre pleasure out of the attention. Oh, I'm sure you could just read that vibe off of him. Yeah. Two days after Luca's visit, the paper received threatening emails. In one of them, it said, quote, Next time you hear from me, it will be in a movie I am producing that will have some humans in it, not just pussies. <gasps> he signed it with the name of a British killer, but Alex West believed it was from Luca. The Sun notified the London police, but they said it was out of their jurisdiction and they couldn't do anything about it. Luca later admitted to sending these emails. So they just did nothing? Like they didn't even forward them on to Canada? Not that I'm aware of. And unfortunately, this email would be a warning of what was to come. The following year, at the beginning of 2012, members of the Animal Beta Project received a tip that Luca might be in Montreal. They got to work and matched a unique light post in the background of one of Luca's posted pictures to a light post in a Montreal community. That's a lot of detective work. Yeah. These heroes painstakingly searched Google Street View of intersection after intersection until they found a match to Luca's photo. Wow. That's dedication. It really is. They need to work on some cold cases. Absolutely. Hire this group for real. And if this information about the cat seems familiar, you may have watched the documentary on Netflix titled Don't F with Cats. This is a documentary that covers the hunt for Luca. And full disclosure, I did not watch this documentary. I typically watch any videos I can that pertain to a case. However, Melissa and I researched some pretty dark stuff, and some of it is a little bit hard to shake. I didn't want to have images of tortured kittens on video to be etched into my brain. I did see parts of it during other documentaries, like him playing with the cats before he suffocated them, and of the cat taped to the broom before it was drowned, and honestly, that was disturbing enough for me. So I made the decision to stick to more of a timeline of events that was created by CBC News regarding the kittens. That being said, if you want to dig deeper on this aspect of the case, I suggest you maybe watch the documentary. We honestly could spend a lot of time on this part of the case, but I feel like we should move on and focus more on the murder that is about to take place. It's going to get much worse. I find it shocking that the documentary is about the cats and not the actual murder. 
Well, I didn't watch it. Oh, so okay. I don't know. It may go into the murder, but I think it's called that because it starts with the cats. Right. Okay. That would make more sense. Yeah. <laughs> Listeners, if you've watched it, let us know how it was. Around the time that Luca is discovered being in Montreal, his posts are beginning to include topics like necrophilia and sedatives. He also posted an article about how to disappear completely and never be found. It consisted of a six-step process that would take a minimum of four months. This guy is nothing but a giant red flag. Which just makes it so hard in hindsight. You're seeing all of those red flags and nobody else saw them. Or they actually did see them and there was nothing they could do about them yet. Yeah, exactly. He also posted anonymously about his troubled past filled with abuse and substance use. He counteracted this by saying, quote, I am now successful beyond my wildest dreams. I travel the world, ride around in limos, and have only the most expensive clothing. I've come a long way from eating out of old pizza boxes on the street. It's an interesting view that he has. Before we get into the murder, I will catch you up on some of the other things that were happening during all the cat stuff. In 2011, Luca was taken to Mount Sinai Hospital by the police and was admitted into the psych ward for 48 hours. Luca could not remember how he got to Miami from New York or how long he had been there. The staff said he came across as ultra-organized, but seemed to have appropriate and normal emotional expression. On the nursing record for January 19, 2011, it stated that Luca was fearful of a man who had abused him in the past, and that he was scared the man might come back and hurt him again. The psychiatrist that saw him said Luca was paranoid, anxious, and suffered from psychosis. Luca called his mother for help, but she allegedly refused to help him get released. She probably thought that he needed to stay in treatment. Probably. Even without his mother's help, he wasn't held at the hospital and was free to go. He went back to New York for a bit and then ventured to Toronto. From there, he landed in Montreal in February of 2011. In Montreal, Luca rented a furnished apartment on Charlevoix Street, But by July, he moved to a different apartment on Decorie Boulevard, the apartment where he would ultimately commit murder. When in Montreal, Luca did try to seek medical treatment for his mental health. I believe it was about a month or two before the murder. He entered a walk-in clinic to get his medications renewed, but they turned him down saying he had to see his general practitioner to get a referral to a psychiatrist to write him the prescription. And you've lost them. Yep, exactly. Luca did not have a GP, and so he reached a dead end and stayed untreated. That is maddening. It really is. He was actually looking for help and to go back on his medications. And they're like, no, you have to follow this process. And so we're not going to help you. Bye. Which I understand there's a process and that everybody just can't go to walk-in clinics. And it's not a good thing to be prescribing antipsychotics to somebody that you don't know. I get all that. But I also get how hard it is for people with mental illnesses to actually reach out for help. And so if you couldn't do it, you needed to set him up with a program or a way that he could get those right away. Right. Because you need to capitalize on those moments where they are seeking help. Exactly. That's what I thought, too. The system really failed him right here. Because even why couldn't they have referred him to a psychiatrist or had somebody who could write him those prescriptions? Right. Even to get him held over because... If you don't have a GP, a general practitioner in Canada, which right now there's a shortage of, you can have to wait sometimes months to get in and see one. Yeah, there's so many people without GPs. And they rely on walk-in clinics. And this walk-in clinic was like, no, you need a GP. And I wonder how things might have turned out differently had he received that medication. It's just so sad. It is. Luca's sister, Melissa, spoke to her brother two months before he committed murder. 
She said he looked dazed, as if possessed, and spoke all jumbled about food and their grandmother's hair. She said, quote, he had a blank look. What he was saying was not making sense. She also commented to the trial psychiatrist that she had witnessed her brother's state decline over the years. She said he was, quote, more distant, less able to communicate his feelings, his eyes were vacant, and he had less of a sense of humor. The psychiatrist who examined him during his trial, Joel Watts from the Royal Ottawa Mental Health Center, and the one who Melissa spoke to, said that Luca, quote, often went to walk-in clinics feeling confused, helpless, and thought he couldn't do anything right. He relayed that Luca said, quote, all I wanted was one person to care and love me. Considering how much Luca sought after validation and admiration, I believe that Luca truly felt this way. Yeah, it's totally believable. Doesn't excuse what he does, but I can see that this is where he was coming from. Starting on May 15th, 2012, Luca spent two days making anonymous references online to a video titled, One Lunatic, One Ice Pick. No. This said video had not yet been created, but Luca was trying to stir intrigue and create some hype before the video would even be made. One post showed a person wearing a blue hoodie holding an ice pick. A comment was made that said, quote, where can I watch the one lunatic, one ice pick video? Animal activist who I mentioned earlier, Ryan Boyle, said he believed this coincided with Luca's earlier behavior when he would try to build buzz over a video before it was even released. And sadly, this was true. After days of hype, radio silence. Luca stops posting anything. On May 24th, a man named Jun Lin is reported missing when he didn't show up for work. Let me tell you a little bit about Jun Lin. Jun Lin was also known as Justin Lin. Jun Lin was his Chinese name. He was born on December 30th, 1978, and originally lived in Wuhan, a city in China. Jun decided to follow his dreams in 2010 when he moved to Canada. He wanted to become an engineer. During 2011, he attended a language school called Tyart College and worked part-time at a convenience store. He registered in 2012 as an international student and an undergraduate in the Engineering and Computer Science Facility at Concordia University in Montreal, Quebec. On May 1st, just weeks before he would be murdered, Jean moved into a Griffintown area apartment. He shared this apartment with one roommate. Jean had been married to a woman, but they had divorced. Jean was gay but hid it from his family. When he first moved to Canada, he lived with another Chinese man. His family had met this man but didn't know he was Jean's boyfriend. Jean's family was putting pressure on him to find a wife and settle down, so Jean broke off this relationship. Well, that's so sad. Him and his partner remained friends and kept in frequent contact. At the time of the murder, his former partner was back in China visiting but came back to Canada when Jean Lin stopped responding to him. He later testified at the trial. Jean was described as a fitness buff who lived clean. He didn't drink or smoke and went to the gym four times a week. When you see pictures of him, he looks like a ray of sunshine. Jean went on an app called Grinder, along with other dating sites to meet men. At the time, Luca had an ad on Craigslist looking for hookups. And sadly, Jean responded to his ad. Jean was last seen on Thursday, May 24th, 2012. He last texted his friends at 9 o'clock that evening. Jean was scheduled to work the next day and didn't show up for his shift. His boss found this suspicious. On May 27th, three of Jean's friends went to his apartment to check on him, but he was nowhere to be found. He was reported missing two days after that on May 29th. Jean was a single 33-year-old man who lived on his own accord. 
It seems easy to wonder why no one reported him missing earlier. It took five days. But I can see how it happened. As a society, unfortunately, I think we are trained to worry about men a little less when they go missing in this type of situation. Police did start to look into his disappearance and learned that the last known time Jean was seen was on May 24th. He was caught on surveillance footage entering Luca's apartment building with Luca. And you can see a picture of them at the door online. In the meantime, on May 25th, the day after Jun went missing, a video titled One Lunatic, One Ice Pick was uploaded to the site bestgore.com. I didn't look up this site, and neither should any of you, if the video I'm about to describe has anything to do with what regularly gets posted on there. This video is 11 minutes long. It is gruesome and greatly disturbing, and was reportedly shown to the jury during the trial. Those poor jurors. In this video, there is a naked man tied to a bed frame. He starts out alive and then is seen dead. The lifeless man gets stabbed over and over again with what looks like an ice pick, although the ice pick would later actually be identified as a screwdriver. The man is also stabbed repeatedly with a knife. After the stabbing, the killer, who we now know is Luca, then dismembers the body and performs sexual acts with the body. Oh, that's so gross. Next, Luca takes a fork and knife to cut off a piece of the body and then gets a dog to chew on the remains. Why involve the dog? I don't know. Because of a more extensive video that the police later found, police stated that cannibalism may have been performed. Oh, I did not know that part. Because he edits down this video. And it took him a whole 24 hours to do it. It was the next day that he posted it. During the video, you can see a movie poster in the background for the 1942 film Casablanca. More disturbing than this is the music that Luca played during the video. It was the 1987 song True Faith by New Order. I feel like the song makes this video even worse than it is for two reasons. One, it has an upbeat beat to it, and second, the lyrics. I'd read the entire song lyrics, but that would take too long, so I'll just include a few lines. Quote, I feel so extraordinary. Something's got a hold on me. I get this feeling I'm in motion. A sudden sense of liberty. When I was a very small boy, very small boys talked to me. Now that we've grown up together, they're afraid of what they see. Also, to the childhood I lost, replaced by fear, and the chances are we've gone too far. Yeah, way too far. Yeah, makes me sick. So I believe he added this music to the video after, that it wasn't necessarily playing while it was happening. Oh, it's just his artistic flair coming through. Yeah, it just seems disrespectful. The dog is disrespectful. It's all disrespectful. Hours after the brutal murder of Jeanne, Luca booked a round-trip flight to Paris. He surprisingly used his own passport for this. However, he had a few more dirtbag things to do before catching the flight. The day that Jeanne was reported missing, May 29th, a mysterious package arrived at 11 a.m., addressed to Canada's Prime Minister Stephen Harper at the headquarters of the Conservative Party of Canada. The package was bloodstained and had an unpleasant odor. It was marked with a red heart symbol. Inside this package, a human left foot was discovered. And so is this his throwback to the government tracking him? I think so. I think it speaks to his paranoia on that. But I can't even imagine opening a box and discovering that. Also in this package was a note. The note stated that six body parts in total had been mailed and that the killer would kill again. So now it becomes a bad hunt to find him before he kills again. Right. And where are all these packages going? Exactly. A similar package was dropped at a processing building for Canada Post. 
Police were called at 11.20 a.m. when someone noticed what looked like blood on a package. Police had to call in the Hazardous Materials Unit to inspect the package. This one was addressed to the Liberal Party and contained a left hand. Both packages were sent from a fake Montreal address. Jeanne's torso was soon found in a garbage pile in the alley behind an apartment building not far from where Luca lived, on the corner of Place Lucie and Decorie Boulevard. A janitor first spotted a suitcase on May 25th. There was too much garbage that day and the suitcase was left behind. People complained about a horrible stench coming from the garbage. When the janitor went to investigate, he noticed maggots crawling all oh. over the suitcase. So he decided to open it. No. I am sure he was not expecting to find what he did inside the case. You find maggots, you just leave it alone. Along with Jun's torso, police found bloody clothing and papers that pointed towards Luca being the killer. He wasn't hiding his tracks very well, hey? No. But he had dropped it off and knew that the garbage was going to get picked up, but it didn't. It got left behind. But there's still all the papers in it. Yeah. I think he just thought it was going to go to the landfill and never be found. Video surveillance caught a man who looked like Luca dropping off the suitcase as well as multiple garbage bags. This suspect also looked a lot like the perp caught on the tape dropping off packages at the post office. Among the garbage bags left by the building, there was one that was triple bagged and contained two arms and one leg. On May 26, an attorney who lived in Montana discovered the sickening video and notified his local sheriff, along with the Toronto police and the FBI. All of these officials allegedly dismissed this man's claim. No way. Yes. They told this man that it didn't make sense that a killer would film himself killing someone and then put it on the internet. They did not know anything about the dark web? Yeah. I just can't even believe that that was dismissed. They didn't even take a look at the video? No, they didn't believe that it was real. Ugh. The website that the video was posted on also reported the video. Although the website creator would later face charges for the video being able to upload on the site. He was charged with corrupting public morals and was sentenced to a conditional six-month sentence, half of which he served under house arrest. I find that a little bit shocking because we know that the dark web exists. So how do they get any of those videos posted if you can be charged for posting them or even allowing them to be uploaded? Yeah, those websites just shouldn't even exist at all. Yeah. So how do they exist? Good question. It's all underground. It's a scary place. And that's why I was like, don't look up that website, because I don't know where that's going to take you. That's where the fascination should end. Exactly. When police did investigate the video, they confirmed it was real and that the victim was an Asian male. They stated that the body parts that had been sent to Ottawa could have come from the man in the video. On May 30th, Luca Magnata was named their number one suspect. By this time, Luca had already fled the country. He had left for France four days earlier. On June 5th, packages were received at both St. George's School and False Creek Elementary School in Vancouver. How were they even delivered? How does the person putting the package out not realize that this is something stinky? Yeah, only the one had been intercepted at Canada Post. The packages were sent to the elementary schools from Montreal. One of the packages contained a right foot and the other encased a right hand. These body parts would be identified eight days later as belonging to Jeanne. All four limbs were recovered, I think at the same time as the torso. It would take until July 4th to find Jeanne's head. It was found at the edge of a lake in Montreal's Angrion Park after an anonymous caller called in a tip to the police. Was it Luca? That's what I have written. Do you think this caller was Luca? To me, it seems to fit his M.O. Yeah, it does. 
I totally think it was because if somebody else had discovered it, why would you not just call police? Yeah, I don't know. But there's lots of people that call in anonymous tips because they don't want to have to deal with the police. True, or be linked to it in any way. Right. Could have been someone who had a warrant out for their arrest. Like, who knows? Right. And does Luca claim that he called it in later? Because he's claimed everything else and confessed about everything else. I didn't find anything in my research that said he claimed to call. Okay. Police searched Luca's apartment, but he was nowhere to be found. Inside the apartment, police found blood all over the home. On the mattress, the table, the bathtub, and even the fridge. Most of Luca's belongings were gone, but inside one of the closets, written in red ink, was the phrase, quote, If you don't like the reflection, don't look in the mirror. I don't care. Wow, that's an interesting thing because he's so about his looks and his own reflection. Yeah, but I think that stems from his insecurities. Mm -hmm. In June, Jeanlin was identified as the victim using DNA samples provided by his family. An Interpol red notice was issued for Luca. A red notice is when a request is made to law enforcement worldwide to locate and arrest a person. In Canada, he was nicknamed the Butcher of Montreal and he was commonly named Canadian Psycho in foreign media. The description given of Luca was 5 feet 10 inches tall, 135 pounds, black or dark brown hair, blue eyes. This is how he looked at the time of the murder. But if you look up photos of him, they do vary because he often dyed his hair. On our social media, I'm going to use his mugshot photo because it's not the most flattering. He did have some good modeling photos, but I think he'd hate having this photo represent him the most. (laughs) That's so perfect. So that's what we're going with. That's what you get, dirtbag Luca. That's right. We're using your ugly photo. (laughs) On June 3rd, Luca was spotted in Paris. Police tracked his cell phone to a particular hotel, but Luca had already left. He had hopped on a nine-hour train ride to Berlin, Germany. In the hotel room, he had left an air travel sickness bag and pornographic magazines. He had used a fake passport to check into the room. The next day, police got lucky and arrested Luca inside an internet cafe in Berlin. Police were alerted of Luca's location when a man, who worked in the after-hours tobacco shop of the cafe, spotted Luca and recognized him from the news. Ironically, Luca was found sitting in the cafe with his electronic device reading stories about himself. No way! <laughs> oh, that is so fitting. Seriously. Reading the news about himself, just searching, what can I find about me? Have they caught on yet? Right, because now it's a worldwide manhunt for him. Yeah, his name is very well known now. Yep. He tried to give police a fake name before admitting who he was. He had so many pictures out. How could he ever deny who he was? Yeah, you can't put yourself out there and then try to stay inconspicuous. Luca was charged with multiple offenses, including first-degree murder, and was held in Berlin until he was able to be extradited back to Canada, which finally took place on June 18th. He arrived at Quebec's Mirabel Airport on a military plane. This was treated like a top-secret extradition to help lessen media attention. He was promptly placed in solitary confinement at the Riviere des Prairies Detention Centre. The next day, Luca appeared via teleconference at a Montreal courthouse and pled not guilty to all charges. These charges included first-degree murder, committing an indignity to a human body, posting obscene material, mailing obscene, indecent, immoral, or scurrilous material, and criminally harassing Stephen Harper and other members of Parliament. Had to get that in there about the Prime Minister. It's very important, you know. Yes. But I wasn't surprised. You can't harass the Prime Minister and get away with it. It's true. 
way back, you would have been hung for treason, I'm sure. (laughs) A tentative trial date was set for September 8th, 2014. Luca opted for a judge and jury trial. On September 29th, in a Quebec court, Luca admitted to killing Jeanne. However, he pled not criminally responsible because of his schizophrenia. Luca was examined extensively regarding his mental illness condition, and experts have not always been able to agree on his exact diagnosis. One of his diagnoses during court was having borderline personality disorder and histrionic personality disorder. Dr. Joel Watts testified that Luca showed signs of episodic schizophrenia, the undifferentiated type, histrionic personality disorder, border personality traits, and paraphilia not otherwise specified. Never have I researched a case where the mental health was so debated. I am barely scratching the surface regarding this part of the trial. Six experts testified, and all six of them but two had differing opinions regarding Luca's exact diagnosis. Which it always floors me when we have all of these experts testifying at different things, and then we have lay public acting as jury to try and wade through all that and then make a decision. Yeah, how is that even possible? I don't know. It always shocks me. That's what we rely on. It's true. But he opted for the jury and judge trial. He probably knew they'd be confused. Right. A lot of defense attorneys will advise their clients on which option to choose based on the most favorable outcome. Oh, I believe that. Dr. Joel Watts spent over 44 in-person hours interviewing Luca. Most of the time, he only spent between 8 and 10 hours with an accused. He felt like Luca met the criteria to be not criminally responsible for his actions and that his actions were psychologically motivated. And only about one in a thousand criminal cases at the time in Canada ended up not being criminally responsible. So it's pretty rare to get that. Laura Lynch interviewed Dr. Joel Watts and asked him to explain why he didn't think Luca was criminally responsible, because this was not a popular viewpoint. He answered, quote, Well, so I think that, more likely than not, the primary motivating reason why he committed the offenses that he did, why he killed Mr. Lynn, why he dismembered him and did all the other awful things that he did to his body, and mailed the body parts and wrote threatening letters to the Prime Minister at the time, I think the reason that he, the primary motivation for that was because he had delusional beliefs, because he had talked about hearing voices. He was known to suffer from hallucinations for many years, and he was describing hearing the voice of an individual he called Manny, who was seeming to direct his behaviors. But more than that, the other different rational motives that I was thinking about and analyzed, they didn't add up as being the primary driving reason as to why he would have done what he did. So I kept coming back to the psychotic motive was more likely the driving motive. But doesn't his fleeing show that he knew what he had done was wrong? Oh, he totally knew. Yeah. So isn't that the criminally responsible? Well, I would think so. But I'm not an expert. Neither of us are experts in that area. No. But like I said, this was not the popular opinion. He was kind of going against what everybody else was saying, but had spent the most time with him. Well, I know in other cases we've covered, it's come down to whether they knew it was morally wrong to do what they did. Not because their rationales for it were sane, but whether they knew it was morally wrong. Right. And he's talking to the motive of doing it. Mm -hmm. Well, and maybe this next part will help to clarify to where Luca was coming from. Luca told Watts that he heard a voice tell him to tie up Jeanne and have sex with him. This voice, or Manny, told him to kill Jeanne because he was an agent. Luca said, quote, I don't remember what was happening. It was like a blackout. I remember feeling wet, hearing voices saying, cut it. 
He said the voice told him everything to do. He said, quote, it was like having someone inside of me taking over, like a spirit inside me. Okay, that sounds more like not criminally responsible. (laughs) If he's telling the truth. Right. So maybe at the moment he was in this state of psychosis and then would have realized what he did and fled. The prosecution argued that schizophrenia was not to blame for Luca's actions. It was said that his narcissistic histrionic personality disorder drove him to commit such vile acts. It was also noted that there was a clear escalation of behavior when watching Luca's kitten videos. Part of the evidence presented by the prosecution was items found behind Luca's apartment after the murder. These items included scissors, a handheld saw, a screwdriver, clothing, receipts, a jock strap, a hammer, the Casablanca movie poster seen in the video, and a felt red square that was prominent during Quebec's 2012 student unrest. Autopsy revealed that John's skeletal marks suggested that a knife or exacto blade were used to inflict injury. It was also pointed out during court that Luca did not behave like a person who was fearful of what he had just done to Jeanne. This claim was supported by video of Luca leaving his apartment wearing Jeanne's hat and shirt and coming back with the suitcase that he would later use to help dispose of the body. This claim was also substantiated by the fact that after committing such horrendous things, Luca was able to edit and put together a video, which included music, and then uploaded it to the internet. And remember, he had hyped up this video for weeks before he even filmed it. Yeah, that's premeditation. Right. I can see why this is so debated, this case. The defense painted a very different picture of a wounded soul who had been abused by his parents. They said he had been even suicidal twice during his life. The only reason he hadn't gone through with it was because of the thought of his mother. They also tried to justify Luca leaving the country when they said, Quote, he is often impulsive, going on vacation with minimal planning, such as his recent trip to London. And I say baloney. He was running. Yeah. Although, was he really running if he used his own passport, but he did have other passports available to him? He used a different passport to check into the hotel in Paris. Right, but he used his passport to get to Paris. Yeah, he did. So, if I was running, I have fake passports available to me. I'm not using one of those even to book the flight. But he always liked to have the attention on him, so if he booked it with his original passport to get to Paris and knew he wasn't going to stay there long, it would let them know that he left the country. Don't just look in Canada for me. He wanted this to be worldwide, I think, and it was. He got the red notice. Oh, it's true. Because they didn't find him in Paris. They found him in Germany. Yeah, that's true. Hard to say. I think he was running. I think he was running, too. They continued to explain his condition by saying, quote, He compulsively pulls his hair out of his scalp and has bald spots as a result. He puts the hairballs in his mouth, but does not swallow them. Oh, that's gross. It is gross. The defense also argued that Luca was living in a constant state of paranoia. He always thought people were watching and talking about him. But I must argue, isn't this what he was constantly striving to obtain? Celebrity status? If you were worried about everyone around you, would it not make sense to hide from the public as much as you could? Yeah, it doesn't seem like it's shiving. Luca's legal team said that he slit Jeanne's throat and dismembered his body into 10 different pieces because he is mentally ill and must be found not criminally responsible because of his psychiatric history. The Crown argued throughout the trial that Luca knew exactly what he was doing. He planned the murder in advance, did unspeakable things, cleaned up the crime scene, disposed of the body, and then fled the country. They said he was, quote, purposeful, mindful, ultra-organized, and ultimately responsible for his actions. 
Luca's condition was considered fair when he took his medication. Without it, he experienced symptoms of paranoia, auditory hallucinations, and fear of the unknown. He had been warned by the previous judge to take his medication always. Surprisingly, Luca decided not to testify. I totally thought he would have wanted all eyes on him. It was probably at the advice of his attorney. Oh, I'm sure it was, but we've still covered cases where they talk anyway. It's true. Luca's trial lasted 12 weeks. Ten of those weeks were spent on witness testimony. On December 15, 2014, a jury of eight women and six men found Luca guilty on all charges. 32-year-old Luca was given a life sentence with the possibility of parole in 25 years. He was also sentenced a total of 19 years for the other charges. These terms are to be served concurrently, so he will be up for parole after the 25 years. Hopefully this does not happen, as he would still likely have a lot of years ahead of him to wreak more havoc. I can't imagine them letting him out. But we've seen it, where they're under a good regimen of medical care, medications, psychiatric treatment, and they're doing so good, so they let them out. It's true. He is incarcerated at the Port Cartier Prison in Quebec, Canada. Luca tried to appeal, but later withdrew his appeal on February 18th, 2015. He was never tried for killing the kittens. I'm surprised they didn't tack that on. Yeah, because I think you can get a lot of years added on for animal cruelty. Sometimes more years than being cruel to humans. Right. Mind you, what he did with Jeanne's body, all of that together only gave him another 19 years, and it was to be served at the same time, which just seems like it shouldn't have happened. Yeah, that is so wrong. Yeah, it should have been consecutively, because then it seems like a sentence that doesn't even matter. It's irrelevant. That's right. Before we end, I want to talk a little bit about Jean Lin's family and some of the aftermath. Jean's parents came to Canada from China when they heard the devastating news. They arrived at the Trudeau Airport in Montreal on June 6, 2012. A candlelight vigil was held that night. They said their son's death was a destructive blow that hurt them both physically and psychologically. A translator was provided during the trial. Jean's father vowed to be present at the court every single day until it was over. There were a few public celebrations of Jean. On June 8, 2012, Concordia University announced that they had created an award to commemorate the life of Jean Lin. The Chinese Students and Scholars Association of the university also established a fund to cover expenses to the Lin family while in Canada, which I thought was so nice. That is a sweet gesture. Jean's body was cremated on July 11, 2012, and his ashes were buried in the Notre Dame de Neige Cemetery in Montreal. His parents said they buried him in Montreal because it was his favorite city, the city he had chosen. The funeral home graciously donated their services to the grieving family. On July 21, 2012, Jeanne was honored at a memorial in Montreal, where the Chinese community gathered to mourn with Jeanne's parents. Jeanne's mother spoke in Mandarin and said, quote, He was taken so fast. When a child dies, a parent's heart dies too. Jeanne's parents said that, quote, Every time his friends get together, we still talk about him. He's still around. They said that Jeanne was their pride and joy. People living in China were extremely upset over the murder of Jeanne. A lot of them believed the killing was racially motivated. Another thing that happened that had people mixed on their feelings about it was when Canadian media named Luca Magnata the Canadian Newsmaker of the Year. No. Yes. That's exactly what he wanted. It is. Why would they do that? Canada, what were you thinking? I know. We can all imagine just how tickled pink little Luca would have been to hear this. One media studies expert said about why Luca's case was chosen, quote, 
It had sex. It had murder. It had an ostensibly good-looking alleged villain. It had intrigue. It had social media. It had international elements. About this, interim liberal leader Bob Ray said, quote, Let's not forget that a young man was killed in the most terrible of circumstances. He came to Canada to improve himself and to improve his life, and he is dead. His family in China is mourning, and his friends are mourning, and all of Canada should be mourning for the person who died, rather than celebrate the notoriety of Mr. Magnata. I would agree completely. He is an absolute dirtbag and shouldn't have gotten that recognition. Absolutely not. It's like a slap in the face to Jun. I think so, too. I think murderers should be off the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Jeanne's dear mother turned out to be so remarkable dealing with her son's death. She said she developed sympathy for Luca and was setting up a foundation to help troubled youth. At first, she called her son's killer the devil, but later said, quote, A troubled young person may bring negative impact to the society later on when they grow up. If we can show our care for them and offer them help when it's needed, I think we will be able to sustain a better society with love and harmony. Wow. What a queen. I don't know that many mothers could feel this way after going through what she did. There's so much kindness that was shown during this case. Yeah. You can just tell like Jean was a good person and obviously so was his family. Mm -hmm. She was not able to attend her son's funeral. She said it was just too hard for her. However, she wrote a eulogy for her beloved son to be read at his funeral. She ended her son's eulogy with these words, quote, Jean Lin, I believe you will be happy with my decision. Mommy will stay strong. Rest in peace, my son. Goodbye. And that is the case of a man who grew up with mental illnesses, who didn't take action to consistently treat those said illnesses, and ultimately murdered an innocent man and treated him with the most disrespect afterwards. The dirtbag, who was truly ugly on the inside, Luca Rocco Magnata. I think you said it perfectly that he was ugly to the core. Yeah. I think there's no doubt that he was suffering mental illness and was really struggling in his life. But I don't think it excuses the actions that he took. No, there are so many other people that struggle with the exact same things and they don't turn into murderers and dirtbags like he did. Mm -hmm. There are other choices. Absolutely. And I'm not proud to claim that he is a Canadian. I know. But for Canada Day, which is approaching, hopefully you can celebrate the good Canadians in your life and the people who do make this country a better place. And if you don't live in Canada, we hope you celebrate your own country. Absolutely. And we'll be back next week when Melissa will have another Canadian case to tell us all about. For our 100th episode. Yep, we're excited about that. We hope you all check back in with us next week. Until then. See ya. Bye. That's the that's the theme today. Get her done. <laughs> Get her done. <laughs> We're trying hard to be kind today. <laughs> Some days is so much harder than others. That's so true. <laughs> we hate motorcycles <laughs> and trucks. <laughs> this was not an easy thing for them to be This was not an easy <clears throat> Why is my throat? It's cuz I didn't talk at all today, I think. <laughs> I just sat cramping up. Yeah.
You need chocolate. <clears throat> that is what I need. Sorry, I only have yogurt, and I that's not going to do anything for your dairy allergy. <laughs> no, that will be worse. <laughs> be like, pause, please. <laughs> Psychiatrist. 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 Oh, just talk, Christy. <laughs> we all had a crush on Brandon from 90210. <laughs> I was flipping through them and then I was like, oh, <laughs> not what I wanted to see. <laughs> I'm disappointed, Christy. That's not digging deep. I didn't want a virus on my computer. Who knows what would have showed up? <laughs> Sometimes I don't want to dig that deep. <laughs> probably what the movie was called (laughs) (laughs) and shouldn't have gotten that recognition and shouldn't have gotten that recognition (laughs) you have tears in your eyes i look up oh that's why she's quiet (laughs) i gotta give myself a minute and next week melissa will have hopefully a non-canadian case for us no it's a canadian case oh it is (laughs) yes Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. I'm Matt Kundal, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.